Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And if you're joining us here in person, you're going to have to look it up in your Bible because we don't have a screen today. But Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And if you're joining us online at home, it should be on your screen at home. But this is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory, Lord, and we thank you so much that, Father, you are with us. We thank you, Father, for that tender time of worship. We know that your spirit is here. We pray and ask that you would um, just really minister, which is what you are always doing in your church. Please minister as you minister through that time of worship, minister now through the word, minister, Father, even as we uh, go into a time of prayer and then fellowship and fundraising, Lord, continue to work. You are always with us. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Revelation. It's called Seven Letters to the Church. And as I've been saying, Revelation is one of those books that is mysterious. It can leave more questions than answers. And yet, the very reason it was written was to do the exact opposite. Because the word revelation itself, in the Greek it is apocalypsis. But the word itself means to reveal and make plain. Something that is a his, uh, mystery in the past is now been made plain. So that's what revelation means. And what does it reveal? Okay, what is it making plain? Well, the answer is right at the beginning of the book. Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is revealing to us Jesus Christ. Right there, chapter 1, verse 1. It is a revelation of who Jesus is in his glorified form. So after he died and rose again, he ascended to heaven. But what is he like? Well, Revelation shows us. But that's not all. It's also revealing what he will do before, after, or I should say during, and immediately after his second return. So what will Jesus do as his return draws near? Now, when you open the book to the first three chapters in Revelation, because that's where we're going to be in this whole series, the focus is on Jesus and what he's doing before his second coming. So not during, not after, but before. So what is he doing right now before he returns? Well, it's very clear. He is standing in the midst of his church. John had this revelation of the seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches in Asia Minor, but it's bigger than that. It represents all the churches throughout all time. And Jesus is right in the middle of those candlesticks. So he is in the midst of his church, but he's not just standing there, but what is he doing? He's ministering to his church. So have you guys ever read that revelation or that vision of Jesus and you thought, okay, that's cool, but it's so weird, right? That picture of Jesus, I don't connect with it. Well, we should connect with it. Because every description of Jesus, what he's wearing, what he looks like, is a ministry. It represents a ministry he is doing for the church. And we've already looked at it twice now, so I'm not going to review it again. But it represents his ministry. And here's where all of that ministry shows up in the book of Revelation. It shows up in the seven letters to his church. 
So when he sent these seven letters, and we've already started looking at them. We looked at the first letter. Today we're going to look at the second letter. But every time he sent one of these letters to his church, he was ministering to them. He was ministering. And that's why every letter starts with the description of Jesus at the very beginning of the letter. So please don't miss that. Every time we look at a letter, look at how it describes Jesus right at the beginning. Why? Because those descriptions are pointing to his ministry for that church. And that letter was sent to minister to them. Does that make sense? So this is something that we can't miss. We need to notice that Jesus is ministering to his churches through these letters. So I hope all of that is clear. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus' second letter to the church at Smyrna. And this was a suffering church. So Jesus sent his second letter to a suffering church. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this church. It was probably started when Paul was ministering in Ephesus. So if you read in the book of Acts, he was there in Ephesus in Acts 19, and he was doing a powerful ministry there. A church got started, and somewhere along the line, either Paul or somebody Paul converted went out to Smyrna and started this church. So you could call it a church plant out of the Ephesian church. So this is the church of Smyrna. It was in the Roman city of Smyrna. This was a beautiful city. People call it the most beautiful city in Asia. That's how historians refer to it. It was right on the coast of the Aegean Sea. So think of like a beautiful city like San Francisco. Actually, San Francisco isn't too beautiful anymore, but it used to be very pretty. But, but a beautiful city like that, right on the coast. It had a huge harbor, a lot of commerce. And the city was famous for their dedication to Rome. They were obsessed with Rome. They loved Rome. And here's one example. Okay, it went beyond the normal. But the city of Smyrna loved Rome so much that they built a temple next to their many other temples, and this whole temple was dedicated to worshiping Rome. Okay, not just the emperor, but the Roman Empire itself. So can you imagine a church being built and started in Riverside, not to worship God, but to worship the United States of America? And some of you guys are thinking, we already have churches like that. That's a different sermon. <laughs> but imagine a church like that, right? But this was the, the city of Smyrna. But they built this temple to worship the Roman Empire itself. And this piece of history is important because it's going to explain why the church at Smyrna was so persecuted. So we're going to look at that in a little bit. But this is the context where this church sprung up. But for now, what I want us to understand is this church was suffering. This church was suffering. If you look in verse 9, the word tribulation, Jesus said, I know your tribulation. That word means serious trouble, a crushing burden. I'm talking about a suffering that doesn't seem to have an end in it. Have you guys ever suffered in that way where it's like, when is this going to end? And during that suffering, it feels overwhelming. It feels beyond what you can handle. I mean, there are times where you're just like, I, I can't do this anymore. And I've heard people say that oftentimes. I've said it. I just can't do this anymore. But that's the picture here. That's the kind of suffering we're talking about. And Jesus, because he's always in the midst of his church, he sees everything going on. And he sees the church at Smyrna. And he says, I'm going to encourage you. Okay, Jesus loved this church. He said, I'm going to comfort you. And so this is why he sent this letter, to comfort them and encourage them. And notice, it's just a few verses, right? But in those verses, Jesus had no words of rebuke. This is only one of two churches in the seven letters where there's no rebuke. But this is one of them. But Jesus had nothing negative to say to this church. 
And so this letter, that's not even the point of it, to rebuke them. But it was to strengthen them and encourage them. Why? So that they could stand and endure. Okay, this is what Jesus cared about. He's like, I love you, Smyrnans. I love you. And I want you to stand and endure the suffering you're going through because I see it. And so this is Jesus' purpose, why he sent the letter. And how did he strengthen them? Well, he gave. Jesus is always giving. Okay, as we're in this relationship with Jesus, if you're not experiencing his giving, then you're not really in a relationship because he's always giving. But he gave. He gave several things to the church of Smyrna. And all of these things are in these few verses. But he gave. And so he gave a lot of things so that they would endure and stand under their suffering. Okay, this is what Christianity always gives to those who are suffering. And this is where I see such a stark contrast between Christianity and the culture today which is by and large secular. While Christianity has real things to offer the sufferer, modern secular culture today has surprisingly little to offer the sufferer. Very little. And that's why it always surprises me when people hear that I'm a Christian, or maybe you see this on YouTube, some Christian is talking to somebody, a non-believer, and, they, and they're sharing the gospel, and the non-believer just goes, I don't even know why you believe in this stuff. And that's always just curious to me. It's interesting because... If you truly understood what your culture offers you, it's almost nothing compared to what Christianity truly and deeply offers you, especially in the area of the problem of sin. Okay, what does your culture offer you to deal with sin? Okay, and the problem of suffering, here's another one. But what does your culture offer you to deal with suffering in a real way? Very, very little. And that's because their whole way of seeing reality is to maximize the good life now. And there's a very philosophical reason for that but their whole way of viewing life is i need to maximize the good life now and it's not all bad but the good life is filled with things like family whoa something just turned on all of a sudden <laughs> but it's filled with things like family friends relationships pleasure entertainment success achievements having a cause a good cause maybe even to change the world but this is what a good life is made up of and they need to maximize these things now in the here and now. Why? And here's the philosophical reason. Because they know, or at least they believe that they know, this is all there is. There's nothing else. There is no God. There is no Holy Spirit. There is no heaven, no hell, no greater purpose beyond this life. This is all we have. Energy and matter, this is it. And so in the short life that I have, and many of them are honest, they, they say we're not going to be around very long, but in the short life that I have, I need to maximize the good life now. And so this is their view of reality. And in that view, what does suffering become? For the non-Christian, for the person in our culture today, what does suffering become? It's nothing more than a terrible intruder to my mission in life, which is to have the good life. It's a terrible intruder. You know, I found these words as an anonymous person, but he calls himself a secular humanist. I found it online. But a secular humanist are people who reject belief in God as the basis for life. Instead, they embrace human reason and things like science and morality without God. They believe they can have morality without God, but they embrace these things as the basis for life. So if you know anybody like that, that's a secular humanist. But this person said, I feel no fear of death and seldom give it much thought. When I die, I will simply cease to exist. A person may suffer before dying, but death itself has no suffering. My advice then is to do your best while living and not worry about death. 
Secular humanists accept death as an inevitability, but embrace life as valuable because of it. Therefore, and please hear him, therefore humanists seek to obtain the best quality of life possible now. This usually entails avoiding and preventing needless suffering. So you need to pay attention. This is coming straight from the mouth of, of a humanist. But he calls suffering needless. The only thing that we need to do with it is avoid it and prevent it. So this is according to him. And again, that makes perfect sense if you're coming from their view of reality. Because everything about my life is maximized good here and now. Because I only have a few years. This is it. After I'm gone, I'm gone. I cease to exist. So anything that brings the opposite, which is suffering, I got to avoid that. I got to prevent that. So it is an intruder to their few years on the earth before going out of existence. Now, I'm not saying humanists see no good in suffering. A lot of them do. There may be some good that comes out of suffering, maybe becoming more connected to other people who suffer. Yeah, that's one result. Maybe becoming stronger in your character. A lot of non-Christians see that. You know, when I suffer, I, I somehow become stronger. They understand that. So I acknowledge all of that. But here's the key. But the suffering itself has no meaning for them. Yes, good can come out of it, but the suffering itself, there's no reason for it. I mean, I could make the best out of it, and oftentimes non-Christians do, and it's admirable. But the suffering itself is random. There's no purpose. There's no reason. There's no meaning behind it. So that's the view out there. But now in contrast, Christianity, and again, it's all here in these few verses. Christianity has deep, meaningful, real things to offer the sufferer. Real things. And it's not a surprise that during the most terrible times of suffering, suddenly all of these religious, especially Christian expressions, they come to the surface. Okay, it's, not, it's not an accident. The most recent example is the mass shooting in Texas. I know I've referred to it here and there, but that, but that terrible mass shooting happened a few weeks ago in Uvalde where 19 young children and two teachers were shot, killed, literally in their classroom while they were having school. And I remember shortly after that terrible event, images that started coming out, one of the earliest images was what? It was a church service. Many of you guys might have seen it. But the entire town called this church service, and a lot of people went there. I believe even non-Christians went there because they were just seeking, like, meaning or, or, or a way to understand this and comfort. And I remember as the cameras were rolling, they were hearing people preach, and then they were praying together. I mean, some people were passionately praying, like, with their heads between their knees, and then they began seeing amazing grace. I mean, it was, it was just a wonder to behold. And I remember one of the city officials, he was being interviewed, after the shooting, and the interviewer said, how do you think your city is going to pull through? How are you guys going to get through this? And without missing a beat, this is what the city official said. He said, our faith, our faith. He said, this city is full of churches. There are many churches in Uvalde, and it's going to be our faith that's going to get us through. He's probably a Christian. But this is what you see in times of suffering. Even non-Christians, they acknowledge. I, I don't know. Sometimes I get drawn to religious things, especially Christianity or church, when, when there's a terrible event in my life. And so they might show up on Easter or Christmas. But why? What is that? Well, even if people can't explain why faith in God strengthens them during suffering, they kind of intuitively know it. The human beings just kind of know that. And they're right. Because believers, Christians, are given rich resources in times of suffering. 
Okay, this is what your faith gives you. You got to understand your faith. Okay, the next time people go, I don't know why you believe in this stuff, you need to kindly and gently say, well, I don't know why you believe in what you believe. Because I know what I get in my belief. I know the resources that are given to me. Your belief, I don't know what it gives you. It's actually shockingly thin what it gives you. But Christianity, there are deep reservoirs of encouragement and strength in suffering. And in fact, biblical Christianity offers something so great that it changes the nature of suffering itself. Okay, I can't unpack all this today. Okay, We're, we're hot. I'm not going to preach that long. But it changes the nature of suffering itself. That is what Christianity offers. And I'll give you a clue. It happened on the cross. It changes the nature of suffering itself. It doesn't just give you a pick-me-up pick or an encouragement during suffering. It changes it itself. So what does God offer us in our suffering? Well, we're going to look at a few things. First, God offers acknowledgement. He will acknowledge your suffering. Look at Revelation 2 verse 9. What are the first words Jesus said to this church? I know. He said, I know your suffering. I know your tribulation and the poverty and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So you should underline that. I love underlining, circling in my Bible, but I know. Jesus said, I know. In other words, he saw them, and he saw their suffering, and he knew that their suffering was great. Again, that word tribulation means a serious trouble, a crushing burden. This is not some, something light passing by. And Jesus knew that their suffering was great, not only in a generic sense, but in a very specific way. How do we know that? Because he talks about it. Right? He mentions the things that they're going through, and he's very detailed. So, for example, he knew that they were facing persecution from the Romans. Very specific. You know, earlier I said that the city of Smyrna was obsessed with Rome. Remember that? But they, they built these temples worshiping Rome itself. Kind of bizarre. And they built these temples to worship Rome and his emperor. And imagine being a Christian in a city like that. Where you can't worship Rome. You can't worship the emperor. What do you think will happen? Rejection. Persecution. So that was the Smyrnan Christians. They were rejected. So they were law-abiding citizens. I mean, they would have followed the laws of the emperor in any other area. They would have followed them. Except for this one thing. They could not follow the law that demanded the worship of the emperor. They said, no. We'll do everything else. We're law-abiding. But not that. We can't do that. We're not going to go into that temple. We cannot worship a man as God. And so that would have been seen as rebellion by Rome. They would have been targets for Rome. And so this is one thing that Jesus understood. They also refused to participate in the worship of all the other Roman gods. So not just the emperor and Rome itself, but all these other gods that filled the city. So in every Roman city, you would have seen many, many temples, you know, to, to all these Roman gods that were ripped off from the Greek gods, so Jupiter and, I don't know, Saturn and Mars and all these other gods that filled the temples of these Roman cities. And so they were everywhere. And things like social life, business deals, business connections, they all revolved around these temples. So it was very important to be a part of the temple system. And again, the Smyrnan Christians... Couldn't do it. Yes, I understand. This is where life happens. It was kind of like the Walmart of ancient times. You know, you go to Walmart, a lot of things are going on. 
But you go there, and that's where deals happen. That's where connections are made. That's where I buy things, you know, things that I need to meet for the entire week, all this stuff. And the Christian said, we can't be a part of any of that. And so that means the entire city of Smyrna would have seen the Christians as outsiders. You guys are weird. You guys are outsiders. And so that meant that they would have been ridiculed, abused, isolated. They were even called atheists. That's kind of shocking to me when I read that. But they were called atheists for not worshiping all of their gods. You guys don't even believe in God, I bet. They're, you're atheists. And so this was the kind of persecution they were suffering. But there was still something else. But Jesus also mentioned that they were being slandered by the Jews in Smyrna. So look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. In the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So here Jesus is saying, okay, I know what you guys are going through. I see it. But the Jews in this city, they are coming against you. They're stirring up all kinds of false accusations. They're making your relationship with Rome even harder. It's already bad. But they're stirring it up and making it even worse. And it's so bad what they were doing. Jesus called them a synagogue of Satan. See, these Jews, they believed that they were serving God, representing God. But in fact, they were serving Satan. That's what Jesus is saying. You're serving your true father, Satan. And some Bible scholars believe that these Jews could have even been the ones responsible for the plunder of their property. So maybe they did it themselves or stirred up other people to come and plunder the Christians of their property. Okay, this is why Jesus said, I know your poverty. Okay, this doesn't mean, oh yeah, I know that you're kind of uh, struggling because you don't have a job right now. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you guys have nothing. The word there is very strong. Okay, there's two different words for poverty. There's one word that means having little. This is the stronger term. It means having nothing. And Jesus is saying, I know your poverty. You have nothing. Why? Because all your stuff is being stolen and plundered. And yet he said, you are rich. So there are riches that the world knows nothing about. And Jesus says, I see you. I see your suffering and you're going through so much, but you are rich. Okay, I want you to remember that you're rich. You have riches the world knows nothing about. Okay, they're riches in me. Eternal riches, spiritual riches. So Jesus acknowledged all of that. He knew their suffering. It was specific. It was individual. So think about the next time you're going through suffering, or maybe in the most recent time. But do, does that even cross your mind that Jesus acknowledges this? He's in the midst. He's right beside me, and he sees it, and he knows it specifically and intimately. He knows it individually. He's not just generic, but he sees your suffering. So he sees the suffering of his people, his church. And this might not seem like an important point. You're like, okay, great. <laughs> but you got to understand, without it, you can't endure suffering. Okay, everybody needs their suffering to be acknowledged. Okay, this is why whenever somebody is suffering, they usually don't want a lot of people around, but they want someone around, right? You know the whole saying, misery loves company? That's not just the same. Okay, that developed over time in different societies for a reason. Yeah, you don't want a whole lot of people around, but you want somebody around. And, and the reason why is because the moment somebody shows up that you love, that you care for, a friend, a family member, and they show up in your suffering, immediately, they don't even have to say a word, immediately you know what? They're acknowledging your suffering. Right? That's why they came. They don't even have to open their mouth. That was the case for Job's friends. They came to Job in his deepest, darkest suffering and just sat with him for seven days and seven nights. And that was great. And then they opened their mouth and it went downhill. <laughs> But it was great in the beginning. Why? Because when they showed up, I see you, I see your suffering. 
They acknowledged it. And that is vital, brothers and sisters. Without it, you cannot endure suffering. And so they, I'm sorry, we must have our suffering acknowledged. You know, I remember uh, a movie many years ago. I think it was Angelina Jolie. But it was based on a true story. It was actually based on a city, a town not far from here in the Inland Empire. But in this movie, Angelina, Angelina Jolie had a son who was kidnapped. And uh, he was, you know, taken away from her one day. And so here she is panicking and, you know, looking for him. And then I forgot exactly what the events were. But one thing led to another where the cops, the police department, decided we're just going to pass this other boy that we found. Kind of similar enough, circumstances kind of match. We're going to pass him off as her son. <laughs> right? Crazy. And so they bring this boy to her, and the moment she sees him, she's like, this is not my son. And yet they insisted. And then people, the community around, started rallying around the police, insisting as well. And it got to the point where they would even ridicule her. Going, oh my gosh, you're such a liar, and, and, and you're actually hysterical. You're crazy. And so they all came upon her, and they would not acknowledge her suffering. They wouldn't acknowledge the fact that her son was kidnapped and taken away from her. And because of that, if you were to watch the movie, you see her rapid decline until finally she became crazy. So it was tragic. I mean, this is based on a true story. And why? I mean, besides from the fact that she, she lost her son, she couldn't find her son, nobody was helping her. But, but why? It's because everybody around her wouldn't acknowledge what she was clearly suffering, that she knew to be true. And so you see how important that is. Unless people acknowledge your suffering, you won't endure. Okay, if you're going through stuff and you're just all alone and even you believe God doesn't acknowledge, you will not last. You're going to have an incredibly hard time in it. And yet, when you look at scripture, what do we see? God sees it. God sees it. He acknowledges it. Scripture is so clear. God sees our suffering. Nothing escapes him. And like Job's friends, God not only sees it, but he comes to us. This is exactly what we see in this passage. Jesus came to the Smyrna church. He wasn't sending a letter, a telegram from heaven. He was right there. He's in the midst. And so he comes to us. And he doesn't just sit there silently, but he actually says things. And unlike Job's friends, it doesn't go downhill. It actually helps. And so this brings us to our second point, which is the reason for suffering. God gives us the reason for suffering. So Jesus told the Christians at Smyrna, there's a reason for your suffering. Look at verses 10, the first part all the way to 11. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. So here Jesus gives a clear reason for why they are suffering. He said it's the enemy. I see everything and the enemy is on the outskirts of your church and he is constantly coming to destroy the church. And so this is not random. Okay, this is not just a freak accident. This isn't, oh, there's no rhyme and reason. No, there is a clear reason. It is the enemy coming against you. So the Smyrna Christians were caught in a spiritual conflict. It was spiritual, yet it was very real. He said the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. See, Christians need to understand that. Between the spiritual and the concrete reality, the spiritual is more real. Why? Because the spiritual affects the concrete reality, not the other way around. See, the devil, who's spiritual, is now going to throw some of you into prison, a real prison. And so there's a conflict that was going on. So Paul said in Ephesians 6.12, the same thing. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the high places. There's a conflict, brothers and sisters. So there's a reason for all these things. 
you know, both my dad and my brother, they were in the military. And over the years, I kind of hear things here, here and there about the military. And one thing I remember hearing is morale, how important morale is. But in the military, morale is very important. Morale is just simply confidence or this kind of positive mindset in the face of hardship. So morale is very important. A lot of the commanders in the military, they care about it. They, they, they work to build it up and protect it. But morale, and one of the most demoralizing things for soldiers in war, and I have two family members who are not in war, well, my brother was actually in the Iraq war, kind of far away from it, but he was in that war. But one of the most demoralizing things for soldiers in war is not knowing who or why they're fighting. Okay, why, why are we even here? Who, who's really the enemy? Okay, if you don't have those answers clearly in your mind, it is incredibly demoralizing. You quickly lose confidence in this kind of positive mentality of, yes, let's go there. Okay, we're here for a good reason. Let's go out. And let's fight for whatever. You, know, you, put, you put it in the blank. But it's incredibly important. And so for here, the Smyrna church, Jesus identified it saying, you need to know this. You need to know the reason for why you're facing this. And it is the enemy. And so he identified that very clearly, but here's something else. Here's a higher reason Jesus pointed to. God, he's testing you. Here's another reason. God is testing you. He said the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. The devil isn't testing them. It's God. God is testing them. And what is he testing? Their faith. Their faith. The New Testament repeatedly says this. It's all tied together. It's a wonderful, like, kaleidoscope of truth. It's all together. But James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Why should I be happy when I'm suffering? For you know that the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. Or, I'm sorry, steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see that? 1 Peter 1.6, in this you rejoice. Same thing again. When you're suffering, rejoice. Why? So weird. Why? Because though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, but this happens so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. You rejoice when you're suffering. Why? Because God is allowing it to test your faith. Like throwing gold into a fire. That imagery there is purification. God uses suffering to purify our faith. What does that mean? Specifically, suffering is oftentimes the only way to remove the things we trust in to save us. If you ever struggle with sin in your life, things that you know go deep, that's true. Suffering is the only way God will remove those things. So how do you break your love or your trust in money? How do you break your trust in your career or let's say a lifestyle you carefully put together in order to stay healthy? How do you break your trust in all these things? I'm talking about deep trust. You really trust that these things will save you and give you the life you want. How do you break your trust in that? You can't. There's no amount of willpower that can break your trust in these things. And the reason is because idols, that's what these things are. Idols never live on the surface, but they're bottom dwellers. But they always live at the deepest part of our hearts. And the only way our trust in them, the only way the spell that our heart has over them, the only way they're going to get broken is if God steps in and let us experience the failure of these things. And this is when we experience suffering. 
So what do I mean? I mean, if you truly trust in your career, I mean, your, your heart is completely dependent on that. And you are wrapped up in it. In fact, this is what you value most. That's what worship is. You value this more than anything. Then the only way God's going to break that hold on your heart is by letting that thing fall. So you might lose your career. You might lose your job. Yeah, something terrible might happen, that, and, and it causes suffering in your life, and in that moment, the spell gets broken. So this is how suffering begins to purify our faith. So it's kind of like cutting away all the barnacles okay, on a sea animal. I, I saw this yesterday, but there's this poor little sea turtle that they found on the beach, and it was covered in barnacles. Barnacles are like these other organisms that just latch on, and they're incredibly hard to scrape off. And this poor little turtle was sick. It was struggling because of it. And then, you know, they carefully took it and they, they scraped all the barnacles off. But this is what God does to our faith. But there are all these barnacles, all these things just latching on. And I talked a lot about it last week. But all these things that we love and we just truly love them. Our hearts are completely wrapped up in them. We value them more than anything. Again, that's what worship is. And God says, this is going to destroy you. This is no good. Like the barnacles on that turtle. This is no good. Your faith is going to die. And so then he steps in and he lets us suffer. This is how it's broken. So suffering begins to purify our, our faith in this way. But it does something else. It also, at the same time, drives us deeper towards God. So not only does it break the spell of all these things over our hearts, but it drives us deeper towards God. So there's a negative effect it has, but also a positive effect. Why? Because you begin to realize as things begin to fail, my career is failing me. I'm about to lose this job. Oh, I did lose my job. You know, my family, they're always there for me. My, my, I value them so much, and you should, but more than anything. And suddenly now they're gone or they turn against you. And so one by one, as these things fail, you're driven to God. For those who know God, you're going to be driven to God. You're my only Savior. So this is what suffering does. It's a powerful stimulator of your faith. It cuts away the things that suck all this energy in life, and it drives you to the thing, the one thing that will bring new life, which is God. And so this is what suffering does. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, church, if you're going through hard times, if you're going through incredible suffering, there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. There's an enemy coming against you, but more than that, I'm using it. I'm using it to test your faith. So there's a purpose. And kind of like being acknowledged in your suffering, you need it to endure. You need a purpose if you're going to endure suffering. You need a reason. Now, I've talked about this, uh, this person before, but I was reminded last Sunday during community group. But somebody in our community group, we were talking, and he brought him up. But Viktor Frankl. But this brother brought up Viktor Frankl. He said he's been reading something uh, on his life recently. And Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor. But prior to that, he was a Jewish man, but he was a physician and a philosopher, incredibly intelligent. He was brilliant. But because he was Jewish, he was rounded up and thrown into a concentration camp. And amazingly, he survived. But during his worst nights there, during his darkest time, he wrote about this in his book, but in his worst suffering, he said the one thing that caused him to survive and others couldn't. And he actually wondered about that. Why, why did I make it through this? But a lot of others didn't. They just gave up on life and they died. Many were killed directly, but a lot of them just died in the camps. And he's like, why did I make it? And this is the reason. He said, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. So what is he saying? Same thing we've been talking about. He's like, if you just know why, if you have a reason to live, you can get through anything. You can get through anything. 
And so purpose and meaning, it is vital if you're going to endure through suffering. So not only to be acknowledged in your suffering, but to have this reason. I know the reason why I'm suffering. So again, Jesus offered both to the church and modern secular culture is amazingly thin, amazingly like unavailable to help us in this area. But going back to what I said earlier, modern culture today says the material world is all there is. Okay, we're the product of blind natural forces. And so this is all there is. And when something terrible happens to us, then there's no reason for it. A tornado comes and destroys your house. Oh, well. Your child is born with a genetic disease. Oh, well. Okay, the best we can do is just minimize and try to stop these things from happening. And we should do that. Christians should be, be all about that as well. But they have no other explanation. I mean, that's just how life is. Get on with it. And if there's any meaning that you can find, and a lot of non-Christians, again, find meaning in their suffering. They do. It's a lie that only Christians have meaning. A lot of non-Christians and non-believers look for meaning. But whatever meaning you can find, that's on you. You go find it on your own. And that is an incredibly difficult burden to bear, especially when you're suffering. Okay, you're going through the worst things in your life, and somebody just goes, well, I, I think there's meaning to it, but you've got to figure it out. <laughs> okay? <laughs> I don't know. I'm already going through an incredibly hard time. Now I've got to find the meaning behind this? And so whatever it may be, birth defects, hurricanes, car accidents, the pandemic, you got to figure it out. You make the best of it. Move on. And some people can help, right? We're here to help each other, but you figure it out. And so this is all the culture can offer. Suffering is merely an intruder to the real mission of life, which is to maximize all the good things that I can do now. And if that's all you have, then you're not going to suffer very well. And that's been clearly shown in our culture today. People do not suffer very well. In fact, sociologists say that our culture today is probably the least able to handle suffering. Even non-Christian ancient cultures, other cultures, handled it better than our modern culture. But people today, they don't have the resources. But Christians do. So that's the second thing Jesus offered. Here's the third thing, the power to suffer well. So not only does he acknowledge it, okay, that's important. Not only does he give us the reason, that's also important. But here's the, here's the most amazing thing. He gives us the power to now endure suffering and to overcome it, to suffer well. So in our passage, nowhere does Jesus offer to take away the suffering. That's, what, that's not what Jesus does. But usually what God will do is he will help us to get through it, to suffer well. So Jesus he offers us two different clues on how or where the power comes from. But this power is transformative. Okay, before I read the verses, let me read you a quote. But C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he was quoting somebody else. He was quoting his mentor. But he said, the Son of God, the mentor said, the Son of God suffered unto death. Not that men might not suffer. Okay, Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't be going through suffering. No. But Jesus suffered so that their sufferings might be like his. The Son of God suffered unto death, not so that we wouldn't suffer, but so that our sufferings might be transformed to be like his. So that's the power. That's the source of power okay, that gets us through any kind of suffering. Is Jesus suffered not only to just give us an example, but it transforms our suffering. It transforms our suffering. And so where do we see that in our passage? Well, the first place we see is verse 8. But this is that description of Jesus at the beginning of the letter. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I would underline that as well. Who died and came to life. Okay, what is that? He's talking about his death on the cross and his resurrection. 
Okay, why is Jesus mentioning that? Why is he describing that before the letter, at the beginning of the letter? Because it directly connects to what will enable them to suffer well and get through this. It is my suffering. That's what Jesus is saying. Because I suffered, look at my suffering. I died and then rose again. Now you can suffer well. See, there's a direct connection. And here are two quick ways that his suffering enables us to suffer well. First, it removes the crushing weight that we experience oftentimes when we suffer, the crushing weight. And I'm not talking about the pain, but there's a different thing going on. But oftentimes when people suffer, there's an added weight to their suffering. And a lot of you, all of you know what I'm talking about as soon as I mention it. But it's that feeling of guilt or condemnation. Did I do something to deserve this? I've heard people say that oftentimes. You know, I'm a pastor. I, I get to meet people at their best times and their worst times. <laughs> I, I, get, I get both. I, I don't usually get to meet them when they're normal. They stay away. <laughs> but then when they're really, really happy, like a wedding or something's really, really bad, I get to see them. But usually when I see them when they're doing bad, that comes out. I mean, did I do, did I do something? Right? And, and so they condemn themselves. There's this added weight and this burden that they put on top of their suffering already. So imagine that. You're already struggling. You're already going through immense pain. And then on top of that, you think it's your fault? And so that oftentimes is the narrative in Scripture. Okay, not God's narrative, but you see this with other characters in the Bible. This is Job's friends. But they came to Job. They were quiet for seven days. Great. And then they started talking. Not so great. But they said, Job, you know what? We're here for you. But hey, have you thought about why you're suffering? Maybe it's because you did something. I think it's because you're, you're sinning. Do you have a secret life, Job? I, I think there's something going on, right? And Job's like, there's nothing, right? There's nothing. It's like, no, no, there must be something, right? Because we know good people equals good things in life. Bad people equals suffering. Bad things in life, right? So that was the simple equation. And so that's oftentimes the case. Even in people who don't know the Bible, who aren't even Christians, that's what they believe. It's like, why is this happening to me? It's bad karma. I did something, right, in a different life. In fact, other religions teach that. Okay, Buddhism, Eastern religions teach that. If you are suffering in this life right now, terrible things are happening, guess what? Bad karma. You did something in a previous life. Well, what life was that? Well, we don't know, but it happened. <laughs> when, when, when did I do that? Where? Why? How? They have no evidence of it, but they, that's what they teach. You are just a bad person in a different life, and so now you're paying in this life. Oh, my gosh. And so now Jesus steps in, and notice in these verses in Revelation 2, there's not one hint of karma. There's not one hint of that false equation. Good people equals good things in life. Bad people equals bad things in life. There's no hint of that. In fact, he doesn't even rebuke the Smyrna church. He says, you guys are beautiful. I love you guys. I mean, there's nothing to rebuke. You are the apple of my eye, and I love you, and you are holy, and you're suffering. And you're going to suffer even unto death, some of you. And so do you see that? There's no equation. There's, that false equation is not there. Good people, even holy people, you can suffer greatly. And very bad people, you can have a great life until you go to hell, until you face the judgment of God. And so this is what the gospel begins to show us. It shows us this reality that is completely different from what people think. But it's not just showing us that reality, but what does the gospel do? When Jesus died and rose again, okay, that's the description at the very top of the letter. What happened? He removed that condemnation. Amen? Everything that we actually do deserve. Because we do deserve bad things in life. Why? Because we are sinning every single day against a holy God. I know we don't, we're not really aware of it. We don't think of it. But we are. Every single day we are upsetting God. 
and going against violating his holy commands. And so we actually do deserve a lot of bad things, and yet Jesus took it all upon the cross. So now there is no condemnation in Christ, Romans 8.1. So this is what the gospel shows us. Whatever you're suffering, okay, no Christian should ever, ever think this. If you say this to me, you're going through something tough, and you come to me and you say it, I'm going to be like, shut the mouth. <laughs> Stop talking. Stop talking. If you say, you know, maybe I deserve this. Okay, maybe I did something. This is why this is happening to me. This is why I lost my job. This is why my, my family member got terminally ill. I will just say, shut the mouth. Okay, be quiet. Okay, that is not the gospel. That is satanic, in fact. That is not the gospel. Because in Christ, there is now no condemnation. There is nothing that you do in this life that deserves that kind of judgment from God. Nothing. So then you might be wondering, but then why am I suffering then? <laughs> well, there's a different purpose, right? We already covered that. It's not judgment. It's not to punish you. There's a different reason. It's to purify. It's to build you up. There's something else going on. So that's the first thing the gospel does. And here's the next thing. So already you begin to see how suffering is transformed by the gospel. But here's where it's really transformed. Jesus' cross shows us that the suffering itself, the weakness of Christ on the cross itself. He was never more weak than on the cross. What happened? In that weakness, the greatest power of God was released, right? That's when the whole world got saved, when Jesus hung on the cross. And so what is that? God takes suffering, the point of greatest weakness in our life, and he transforms it to power. And so suffering itself, the very nature of suffering is transformed by the cross, by the gospel. Look at what happened to Jesus. His suffering on the cross brought the salvation of many. That's why we're sitting here. That's why we go to church and worship him. That's why we're, we're going to be in heaven. It's because he suffered on the cross, and that suffering turned into power. Do you understand that? And so if that is the model, if that is what Jesus did on the cross, then what do you think now happens to Christians when we suffer? Same thing. Jesus takes the greatest suffering, the greatest point of weakness in our life, and he transforms it to power. Okay, out of that moment of great suffering, okay, your darkness yeah, why, why did my mom get cancer? Okay, last week, I, I, you know, hearing that, hypothetically I'm saying. It's like, why, why did I hear that? Well, in that moment of greatest weakness and suffering, or even progressively in the months ahead, you will see great power being released. Okay, that is the transformation of suffering itself. And so this is powerful. And so in this short little passage, you see this transformation directly. From their suffering, from their weakest point, Jesus points to something that's going to happen. Okay, this, this transformation, and this brings us to our last point, the vindication of suffering. Okay, they're going to be vindicated. Why? Because the gospel is transforming their suffering. So in the end, everything that felt unjust, everything that didn't feel fair, it, they're going to be vindicated. Okay, vindicated simply means everything is made right. Okay, justice, fairness, everything is made right. They are vindicated in their suffering. Look at verses 10. Through 11, and we're going to come to a close. Be faithful unto death. Why? Just because I want you to suffer? No. Because remember, I died and rose again. Remember my suffering. I transformed suffering itself. Remember that. So, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers. You might be wondering, but what if I'm not one of them? No, every Christian conquers. Who is the one who conquers the world? The one who believes in the Son, 1 John. Okay, every Christian conquers the world. 
the one who conquers, every believer, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, you're going to be in heaven with me for all eternity. And so what is that? Because the gospel transforms suffering itself, the very nature of suffering itself, now the point of your greatest weakness, okay, and what could be the worst suffering than dying? That, that's your greatest weakness, right? When you literally get killed, and some of the people in the Smyrna church actually were killed. They, they laid down their lives. Uh, one of the most famous examples was their pastor, Polycarp. Okay, I don't have time to get into his story, but he was a martyr, one of the earliest martyrs of the church. But Polycarp, their pastor, was martyred, and then, and then others in the church. But what could be the greatest point of weakness in you dying? But Jesus is saying, but be faithful, even unto death. Why? Because even in that greatest moment of suffering and weakness, your death is going to be an immediate doorway into greater life. So death actually takes you into eternal life. And so, I mean, suffering itself has been fundamentally transformed. Even the worst suffering you can imagine, death itself, just brings more life. Do you see that? And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Jesus dying on the cross just resulted in more life. Eternal life for millions and millions of people throughout church history. So death brought even more life. And that is what God has done. And so there is a great vindication of suffering. Now, these are easy words to preach, but very, very hard words to believe and live out when you're actually suffering. I understand that. And so even in my life, I mean, I've just gone through ups and downs. I remember when my younger brother passed away when I was in college. I remember just recently sharing that to somebody, uh, sharing my testimony. And it brought back a lot of memories. And I felt disappointed in God. I struggled in my faith. But God was working. And then even more recently, when we started having children, Jill and I, and then one after another, we're born with hearing loss and just working through that and feeling, again, disappointed by God and just wondering why. And yet even in that, God was working. And I'm here to tell you, I mean, yes, these words are easy to preach but hard to live, and yet God will help you. Okay, God sees all things. He is in the midst. Okay, he himself has suffered, and he will transform your suffering, the very suffering itself, so that what you thought was the worst thing in your life becomes the best thing in your life. Amen? Okay, let's come to the Lord in prayer. But Father God, we just come before you, Lord God, and Lord Jesus, yes, I, I fully acknowledge these words are easy to preach, but very, very hard to live out in the very midst of suffering. I think we just go back to our default of being confused and bitter and disappointed and hopeless, maybe even rejecting you, leaving you altogether. And yet, Lord Jesus, your word is so clear that because of your death on the cross and resurrection, because of everything God is working in our lives, suffering can actually become one of the greatest blessings because you transform the suffering itself, the very nature of suffering itself. This is something that the world can never offer. The world can never offer this. And so, Lord Jesus, please, Lord, help us to understand. Help us to begin to not just listen to these words, but to really walk in them. And we start small. We start with the little things that are, that are hard in our lives. And then we can work our way up to the more, far more difficult things in our lives. But help us have faith beginning with the little trials in our lives. We thank you, Lord. We look to you in Jesus' name.
Okay, let's just spend a brief moment. Again, it's hot. <laughs> We're going to wrap it up soon. But let's just come before the Lord and say, Lord, please. And let this be your prayer if it's sincere. You don't have to pray this if it's not in your heart. But, but Lord, please help me to believe what your word says. That you really do acknowledge my suffering. You give me real reasons for the suffering. You give me power to suffer well. That power comes directly from your suffering on the cross and resurrection. And ultimately, you will vindicate me in my suffering. The worst thing that I could imagine in my life becomes instantly the best thing. It leads me into the best thing. And everything is made right. I'm vindicated. So Lord God, please help, help me to believe these things. So if that's your prayer, let's just pray that. Maybe you could just pick one of them. If you want to focus on just one, but let's just come before the Lord. Lord God, we just come before you, Lord, and Father, my prayer for this church and everybody here, everybody online, but Father God, my, my prayer, Lord, is that we would actually taste the reality of these truths. These are your truths. They're not things that I made up or some author in a book, but Lord God, these are your truths, and I pray that we would taste the reality of them in the very suffering that we might be going through because that's when it becomes real to have a completely different experience of suffering Lord God is never enjoyable it's never something that we would want in our lives in fact your desire your ultimate desire one day is to wipe away all suffering and to create a, a new heaven and a new earth so we know that is your desire ultimately but in the meanwhile you are using suffering you are allowing suffering. In some cases, you even bring it for the highest good. And I pray that we can just have this radical shift in our perspective and understand. Why? So that we can endure, so that we can suffer well. People don't suffer well these days. People don't suffer well. So Lord God, please, Lord, help us. Help us as your church to show a better way. So, Lord God, I pray for that reality, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We just come before you. We worship you. You're awesome, God. You give. You give and you give. You give us everything we need. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's rise for final worship.